What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. This call is from a federal prison. You will not be charged for this call. We spent more than a year on this story, a story whose central source turned out to be a con man. We've walked you through all the evidence that proves that. And that's why we're only allowed to talk to Matt now in 15-minute increments. This call is from Matthew Marshall. To accept this call, press 5. For months, Ken had been gently confronting Matt with bits and pieces of evidence. But he hadn't yet laid out for Matt everything we know. The fake spy background, the cropped photos, the bullshit missions to Syria. It's hard to lay that at a person's feet, especially if those feet are wearing prison-issue slip-ons. You may begin speaking now. Matt. Ken. Hey. Let's just get straight to the point here. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Ken had been dreading this call for weeks. First off, I just want to make clear to you that, like, I feel badly you're in prison. But, you know, the problem is that I just couldn't back up a lot of the stuff that you told me, uh, you know, about yourself. Like, one thing that is very disturbing, to be honest, is that you have talked about being in the CIA. And I have not been able to confirm that. And Kenneth tried so hard, like genuinely hard, to find any evidence that Matt was CIA. But he couldn't. What he found instead was a lot of evidence showing Matt wasn't. And also that Matt had lied so often before that that there is no chance he would have passed a background check. How could the CIA have hired you? You know, they're going to check with your previous... Let me counter your your questions with... I'm so fucking sick of this shit. I I mean, that's what the report... That's what the report concludes. Ken, I've seen the report. Mm -hmm. I've seen the report. Ken kept going through his checklist. You know, you sent me photographs, but I talked to this guy, uh, Morgan Lorette, who said he worked with you at Blackwater and that those photographs were both taken in 2004 and you were not in the CIA. Matt had always told us that the difference between him and Mike was that he took responsibility for his mistakes. Let me just, let me. In emails from prison, Matt basically said all the people we talked to about him were out to get him. He called Frank Gallagher a disgruntled, bitter drunk. He said Evan Hafer, the Black Rifle coffee guy, was colluding with Mike. Morgan Lorette from Blackwater, Matt said he barely knew the guy. I would like to dismiss this, but I can't. Well, then I, 
Ken, there's nothing I can do about that, man. I'm in prison. This is Cover Story, Seed Money. I'm Hannah Rosen. We have reached the hour of reckoning, our final episode. Remember the very first thing we told you at the very start of Seed Money? That almost everyone in the story lied to us about something? I just want to remind you of that before we go on. Because though we figured out a lot, I'm not really sure we'll ever know who really knew what, when. So everything from here on in with a massive block of salt. When Matt went to prison, he left Heather and his daughter behind in Whitefish to pack up the house and deal with his affairs. Got a U-Haul, drove cross-country, and um, couldn't get out of there fast enough, to be honest. Because uh, it was just uh, not pleasant. She and her daughter drove to Indiana, where Heather's mother lives. I don't really think that reality um, of my life has <laughs> has hit me. If you want to say, I mean, I'm living with my mother at 47 years old right now. Um, mm. So, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Just not where I thought I would be, you know? When she got to Indiana, Heather got a job as a nurse and reconnected with people in town. One thing she did not do, which honestly is what I would have done in her situation, is obsessively read the court documents and match up places and dates with texts that Matt had sent her and just generally wring every last detail out of him. There are things that... I don't know. I have questions about with, with Matt. I mean, there's things about, I, I honestly have never read the case. I've never read the court documents. I mean, there's some people who would absolutely need to know every detail. There really are who would need to read right. every court case, ask Matt every single question, like know where every dollar went, like, you know, that would be yeah, for some I, people healing. And I guess everybody's, different you know and that's what's so frustrating i mean there's a part of me i've never been that person i never through a whole marriage i never asked questions i just trusted him i just that's just the kind of person i am which maybe not may you know i'm probably not so trusting now (laughs) um do you think of yourself as married no you don't no i i'm i well i'm going through divorce Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why did you get, what put you to that point? Um, I just, I just had it with, with the affairs and um, I just, I told him I still want to be his friend and try to, you know, we have to co-parent, but um, I just, I'm not in love with him the way that I was. Heather wants to make really clear the divorce is about Matt's infidelity, not about his going to prison. She doesn't want to be seen as supporting Mike's side, ever. And she still calls Mike a horrible human being. Honestly, I couldn't tell you exactly what Heather knew and didn't know. It didn't really seem like the right time to press her on it. My guess is that she knew a lot of things at one level and also didn't know them at the same time, which, come to think of it, that seems true about a lot of people in this story. Anyway, 
Heather's process of reckoning seems to be more like a slow and cautious excavation, starting at the first layer. When I met Matt, I said, you know, I don't have a lot of money and I don't have to be rich to be happy. I just, I want to be able to have my family happy and, you know, food on the table and be comfortable, but I don't have to, I don't have to have a Maserati or a private jet to be happy. No, not by any means. And do you remember what he said? What Matt said? Yeah. I'll be a millionaire. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's the wrong answer to that. Yeah. (laughs) Heather, by the way, does not connect Matt's desire to be a millionaire with the crimes that landed him in prison. She says he planned to earn that money. Either way, Matt did seem to want to live a version of Mike's life. Frank Gallagher, his former employee, he told us that once at the Spearmint Rhino Strip Club, Matt handed him $3,000 to spend, just like Mike had done with Matt. Do you think he had, like, a giant hole to fill, like the way people say about people? Like, he just was never satisfied or always dissatisfied? I I do think there's a part of him, I'm not really sure why, that um, he's never satisfied. But I think he's just never satisfied with with himself and never feels like he's, he's good enough. To, mm-hmm. you know, for, for himself. And I don't know. I don't, I don't know why that is. And I hope he figures it out. I mean, I feel really sad and I don't really know where to go from here. But I think for once I'm going to try and figure out who I am again. And mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, that's exact. It seems like that's exactly where you are. Like this thing happened to you and it just like crushed you and... Now you have to crawl out from under it and, like, one tiny step at a time, you know? I don't know what the future holds, but I just know right now that I'm not happy and Mm -hmm. I haven't been for a long time. So it's time for me to be happy, Mm -hmm. try to figure out what that's like. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So. Well, that's, that's really, that's the most optimistic thing you've said. So that's great. The guy's just a shit. (laughs) Sorry. That is Mary Beth Long, our favorite lady spy. Among the surprising friendships and alliances that sprang up in all this chaos, one was between Heather and Mary Beth. When Matt went to prison, Mary Beth ended up helping them out, even helping pay for their daughter's ongoing education. Because Matt left them absolutely zero. Big bills, as a matter of fact. Like everyone else, Mary Beth is still trying to figure out what exactly happened with Matt. You could tell a version of this story where Mike was supposed to be the bad guy and Matt was supposed to be the good guy. And then it kind of flipped and Matt became unexpectedly the bad guy, which leaves Mike what? Like, is he the good guy? No, he's definitely not the good guy. I mean, I I would push back against anybody who even started to go down that path. Let me be clear. They're both pieces of shit. And being a sexual freak is not a problem. Okay, that's not a term I would use. Who cares? But anybody who blows up everybody around him on a consistent basis, there's a psychosis there that the two of them, I think, share and they found each other. Collateral damage. That's the term Mary Beth uses most often. The people around all of them 
there's significant collateral damage. All the people and all their families who got sucked into this vortex of secrets and lies and warfare between these two. So Mary Beth holds Matt responsible for a lot of collateral damage, obviously. But also Mike, for his carelessness as a billionaire boss, for thinking he could swagger with rolls of cash into complex world problems. If he's that savvy and that caring, then take better care of your businesses so people don't get themselves in trouble and do a better job hiring people so you don't have somebody has zero, zero background in anything you're alleging that he at least was hired for. And then you turn around and say, oh, he defrauded me because he didn't go on any of these secret missions, da-da-da-da-da. How many years did your accountants and your lawyers and you approve every single transaction, every dime that went in or out of your organization and it took you that long to catch them? What does that say about you, Superman? Maybe it tells us about what Mike's theory of seed money might be. He's not only tracking for what investment will make the greatest return. He has enough money already. He also seems to be investing in people and causes that give him that dopamine hit he told us about. And that fit with the story he's telling about himself. In all these conversations we have with him, he's very earnestly convinced that when he gives the woman money, he's helped, that he is good and helpful mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. heroic. Oh, yeah. No, I think he honestly believes it. Yeah. And he'll say to me, Hannah, I don't see what's wrong with that. I can't find a single bad thing. A lot of people, I think, have hero complexes, and they actually cause a lot of damage to other people's lives and having to have that recognized. So they create situations in which they need to be publicly seen as the good guy. Right. And I don't think they appreciate or even recognize, Mike being an example, the damage that that does to other people's lives. Like, what's the damage? Because in his mind, these people are taken care of. They're happy. Yeah, But they're not because you control the strings and you could turn that on and off at any moment and you know it and they don't. Right, right. You know, it's now I'm really off on a tangent, but I've been reading this Octavia Butler series, which is the parable of the sower, parable of the talents. And I read the parable of the talents and it's a similar kind of weird biblical parable where there's a master and a servant and the master gives the servant money and then very idiosyncratically and incomprehensibly like damns one servant for what they did with the money and praises another servant yep like one of like one servant kept it in a hole so that it would yes yes and then he ends up i think he ended up being i think he did he got fired yeah he ended up in hell because because he didn't do anything with the master's money. And it's like, you can't freaking win with these guys. But, you know, I think psychologically, he, he knows that. Yeah. It's, it's, the whole, it's the whole part of the whole gig of being the master, of being the guy with all the power. I just want to know is- While we were on the phone, I could hear Mary Beth talking to her dog. Jesse, no, no. Jingling keys. Can you hear me? And then before I knew it, Hello? I was in a car speaker. 
I lost you for a minute. Yeah, I lost you for oh. a minute. Sorry. Um, okay, well, I'm going to let you go about your day. It sounds like you're driving somewhere. Where are you hey, going? I'm sorry. I, I need it. Uh, I have, I need to go down to, I have a house on the Chesapeake, and I have a spider infestation, and my sister is arriving there tomorrow with nine of her girlfriends, and they will freak when they see the spiders. Maybe you have a huge rural complex. Yeah, I do. I'm saying, like, you, you, you certainly come to the aid of people, you know? Oh, my God, my family. So this is why I think I know about it a little bit. I think everybody in CIA has a little bit of a hero complex, I gotta be honest with you. Uh-huh. All right, so go to, the re- go to the rescue. You can be Spider-Man, Spider-Woman. Well, I'm going, to, I'm going to spray for spiders and then sit and hang out with friends and watch the water go by. After the break, we check in with Batman and Whitefish. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. From New York Magazine, this is Cover Story. As we were working on the story, about once a month, Ken would quote a passage from The Great Gatsby about Tom and Daisy Buchanan. They were careless people, Tom and Daisy. They smashed up things and creatures and then retreated back into their money or their vast carelessness and let other people clean up the mess they had made. Plenty of people still see Mike as a smasher up of things, who then retreats into carelessness while others clean up. We're still getting messages about him, from Whitefish residents, from a local reporter there, from women he's known. Mike now blames those messes on Matt. Or more, a conspiracy connecting all his enemies together. The dancer who sued him, the local police chief who ordered the investigation into Jane Doe, 
a furious ex-friend. He says that Matt was at the center of them all. And Matt was communicating behind Mike's back with some of his enemies, but we haven't seen evidence that he was orchestrating their every move. In our interviews with Mike, we did try to get him to acknowledge some of the messiness. But even just defining the basic terms of what he was doing was hard. Once, for example, the phrase sugar daddy came up. We told you about that. It seemed apt enough, but Mike said revolting. And then Ken gave it a shot. I mean, it, it sounds like you're having lots of casual affairs. You're translating that as casual. Uh, there was nothing casual about those relationships. Those were long-term. Did you ever think of yourself as a sex addict? Is that a terrible question? It just popped into my head. No, I, I, I didn't. I, I don't think I am. I don't think it was. I think it was, you know, call it relationship addict maybe or, or you know, love dopamine hit no oxytocin you get I guess maybe probably addicted to oxytocin maybe Mm -hmm. okay that was an awkward question in our very last interview we inched towards a little breakthrough part of me wonders why like the what prevents you from just saying like yeah I'm a guy who you know likes to go to strip clubs and sleeps with a lot of women like why the political veneer like what is it the reputation is important I'm, I, I do actually wonder that sometimes because nobody really is judging I'm just curious it's really you can go through phases in your life like I absolutely was going through a phase when we're talking about the chumming around with you know con man Matt Marshall uh, where in hindsight you say what was I looking for there have been times I've gone to strip clubs and definitely looking for love in all the wrong places is that, that old song and, uh, and no, I'm sorry, it doesn't fit the, the easy explanation. You're looking for, for sex. I, I mean, relationships are never hard to, to come by, so it wasn't that. It must be something else. But when you finally reach sort of an epiphany about yourself and, and then you can put it all in perspective. Um, what was the epiphany? What were you looking for that you landed in that situation? Oh, you know, I think probably what most of us are looking for that... Uh, the deep human connection that sort of meets all, fulfills all the voids. The way Mike tells it, he was not the kind of person who led women on. I would not ever make promises about, you know, we're going to run off into the sunset together or you're the one and so on. But usually it was, I guess you could say, a don't ask, don't tell kind of policy. And then his current wife did ask. Her name is Jamie. The story is somewhat what led to us being married. She happened to see an Instagram post. I guess it was earlier days of Instagram. I wasn't quite used to the, you know, people posting things. And another woman that I was also had strong feelings for and also had strong feelings for me posted a picture of us, you know, happened to pop up on Jamie's Instagram feed. What happened is, you know, it was a gut punch because what she said she realized was she had been telling herself a story not really asking, not really thinking about it, but sort of telling herself a story that, you know, I think hopefully maybe this will work out. So she was heartbroken and she uh, went off, I think, to Bali with her friends to try to get over her heartbreak and figure out what she was going to do. And she decided on that trip, she was going to tell me it's not going to work out. And, you know, we get together, we still have feelings for each other. And so also I'm coming out of the shower and she says, I know I'm not the only one. Tell me more. 
When we asked for an interview with Jamie, she was understandably wary. Jamie Cogan here. Eventually, though, she agreed to record herself answering a few of our questions. I met Michael over 10 years ago. We met and we hit it off right away. We were talking and we were the only two people in the world. The chemistry was fireworks from the get-go. In uh, late 2014, early, early, early 2015, Michael and I would meet in Lake Tahoe. Yeah, I'd scrolled on Instagram and saw him with his arms around another beautiful woman. Picture of us, you know, um, their arms around each other at restaurants said something like the love of my life. And I found it quite devastating. I wasn't telling her we were going to run off sunset. I wasn't telling her she was the only one. But you tell yourself a story, and that shattered the story. So I went to confront him. Can I ask you something? And I said, sure. And she said, am I the only one? And I thought about it for a second, and I said, no, you're not. And she goes, tell me about it. Without much prodding, just came clean. I mean, I told him, I'm not here to judge you. I just want to understand. I said, well, there's so-and-so, and here's what's going on with her, and here's what I see, and here's, you know, but, but if only she could just reach this level, and, and then this one, and this one. And she didn't hear, oh, because this one was prettier, this one, you know what I mean? Or it's really the yucky, kind of superficial um, guy running around trying to, you know, whatever, you know, sleep with somebody for the next night. I think I witnessed a true and full catharsis. She not only believed it, but over the years she saw it to be, to be true. All these women that he loved, all the circumstances in which he'd helped them with. I recognized this guy's polyamorous, but I saw that because I'm polyamorous. Polyamory is the capacity to love more than one person equally, but differently. And I wasn't practicing polyamory. I just recognized I had the capacity. And here he was practicing it. Oh my gosh, there's a human being, there's a this woman who would not for the rest of my life say, but you were with so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and, you know, always have it be a thing. And nothing could be more cool than the ability to love, truly like love, actually love, 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 like verb love, more than one person. I didn't find it offensive. But uh, we made choices in 2015. And I said, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Like, Jamie and I are such a perfect bond already and then, what am I looking for? What am I doing? All this, you know, and then we, we, you know, got more and more serious. I chose him and he consistently chose me. If you're a woman and you feel threatened by the world, he's the kind of man you want in your corner. Well, he was in the corner of a lot of people and that does not make him bad. It makes him fucking cool the entire world has him wrong and it's just too bad but guess what he's going to be sitting right here working his ass off figuring out how to solve real problems that make people suffer you know one day cancer will be cured and i guarantee you michael will be on the team that solves that problem Back when we were asking Mike all those awkward questions, was he a sugar daddy? Was he a sex addict? Was he just a bro who loves strip clubs? We also asked, 
was he polyamorous? And he said he didn't think he fit the common definition. Quote, I believe that I've been capable of loving more than one human at a time, just as a parent can love multiple children in parallel. There's not just one way to do polyamory, but it usually runs on mutual agreements and transparency. Like people talk about boundaries and limits and fully informed consent, which is in spirit pretty much the opposite of the master and servant dynamics from that Bible story I talked to Mary Beth about. Yes. Oh my, I've read this. Where the master's rules are totally inscrutable and it's really hard to figure out how to come out a winner because you don't have the power. And it's like, you can't freaking win with these guys. As we were getting to know Mike, I read everything I could find about the psychologies of the super rich. And one theme that comes up a lot is how sensitive they are to criticism. Partly because we love to criticize them. Like these terms we casually use, robber baron or douchey billionaire. In one great survey I saw called The Joys and Dilemmas of Wealth, where people worth over $25 million poured out their hearts, a researcher describes being in a room where someone who'd inherited a vast fortune confessed, I'm so-and-so, and I'm rich, and then burst into tears. To feel better, another researcher told me that the rich tend to imagine they're similar to average Joes. Like when Mike compared himself to a painter who gives his girlfriend money to pay for her car repair. Or more often, they take up a cause, like curing cancer. Something that makes them look good, or feel good, or even heroic. There's this text exchange between Mike and one woman that I think about a lot. Because after their very first tryst, she seems to have him figured out. She writes, Have I ever told you you're my hero? And then a little while later, actually texts him what sounds like the Webster's definition of hero. Mike tells her, No, she's the hero. Young single mom, strong and determined. They meet up three more times. He pays off her debts, rent, car. He gives her money to go back to school and to buy a house. He calls this his little changer life plan. Tax returns show that he gave her a total of $590,000. And she tells him, you have changed my life. And then within two months of their first meeting, this woman, who Mike gave more than half a million dollars to, she ghosts him. Mike keeps checking in for weeks. Hi, baby. Are you okay? No response. Baby, I'm super worried about you. Please just let me know you're okay. Crickets. What happened to you, sweet angel? It's Michael. I'm still so sad about the way you disappeared from my life so suddenly. I hope you get in touch soon to at least explain why. So 
some of us spend so much time imagining what fuck you levels of wealth could look like. It's always been an American obsession. Remember Ken's voice memo? Joan Didion was writing about this 50 years ago. Ken, quoting Dartmouth professor Brooke Harrington, who's paraphrasing Didion. She said that the entire point of having money is not being answerable to anyone, to having privacy and being able to do whatever you want. And then you get really close, super intimately close like we did. And it seems like, yeah, you do get what you want a lot of the time. And you can pay people to clean up your messes and people to tell you what you want to hear. But also, it seems like a big, exhausting, lonely, expensive effort to convince yourself that you are, in fact, the man of your dreams. Cover Story is a production of New York Magazine. This season, Seed Money, hosted by me, Hannah Rosen. The story originates with Ken Silverstein, who also reported it. Our senior producers are Marianne McCune and Whitney Jones. Also produced by Noor Bazidi, Kathleen Horan, and Liza Yeager. Sound design and engineering, as well as additional editorial help by Sharif Youssef. Cover Story's theme music by Santa Gold. Series music by Devin Clara Fonslow, with additional music by Links to Muth, Brandon McFarland, and John Ellis. Fact checking by Bertina Chang. Research help from Melissa Romero Martinez. Special thanks to Legal Minds Alyssa Cohen, Jillian Robbins, and Samantha Mason. Also thanks to Gabby Grossman, Ted Hart, Taka Zen, Nicole Hill, Jennifer Marshall, and Rhea St. Julian. Rachel Sherman from The New School, author of Uneasy Street, educated us on the ways of the rich, as did Brooke Harrington of Dartmouth, author of Capital Without Borders. Finally, thank you to everyone at the magazine who helped make this show happen, David Haskell, Genevieve Smith, and Chris Cox. If you're enjoying this podcast, please rate us, leave us a comment, tell your friends to follow. And if you'd like to tell us anything, anything at all, you can send us an email at coverstory at nymag.com. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.